I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Alicia Rankin about her new book, Panacea's Daughters, Noble Women as Healers in Early Modern Germany. The University of Chicago Press published this book in 2013. Rankin's book really upends what we think about when we think about women in the context of science and medicine in early modern Europe. The book argues that noble women in particular were celebrated as healers, and this wasn't despite their gender, but instead because of it. The book makes this argument by situating three really in-depth case studies of noble women as healers and also as patients within a broader treatment of transforming ways of thinking about and practicing experiment and experience, transforming networks of information exchange, and other ways of thinking about the relationship of gender within these networks. It's a really rich story. It's full of really wonderful characters. And so um, you'll, you'll hear in the course of our conversation that Alicia particularly um, likes one of them. And I, my, one of my favorites was um, another one. And I'll, I'll leave that to, to you to listen to in the course of the conversation. But they're very vibrant um, characters. They're very vibrant uh, noble women who we learn about through uh, Alicia's very, very exhaustive archival work in various collections across Germany and beyond. So it's a really interesting book. It's very important in the kind of contribution it's making to how we understand certain aspects of early modern science and medicine. And it was a great uh, experience talking with Alicia about it. So I hope you enjoyed the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with Alicia Rankin about her new book, Panacea's Daughters, Noble Women as Healers in Early Modern Germany. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Alicia, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today about your really fabulous new book. Thank you, Carla. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. So, Alicia, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the general field in which uh, this book is situated? How did you become interested in and start working on early modern science and medicine? <laughs> the long path I could take. <laughs> uh, well, I actually started as I was an undergraduate at Wellesley College. Um, I took a seminar in the history of medicine with Catherine Park, who was then at Wellesley and eventually moved to Harvard and ended up being my PhD advisor. But in between that, between Wellesley and my grad school experience, I went to Germany for three years and decided I wanted to be a lawyer um, and eventually decided that would not pan out. And the thing I really loved was history in general, early modern history in specific. I was always really interested in um, the Middle Ages and early modern period. And the thing I had loved the most for my entire undergraduate history major was a paper I had written in the seminar on the history of medicine. Um, in specific, women's medicine in early modern Germany. And since I spoke German, it seemed like a good thing to continue. Um, so that's the general topic. I was lucky enough to end up at Harvard working with um, Catherine Park as my advisor. And the specific topic I developed really came very slowly. I knew I wanted to do something with women. I initially thought I wanted to do something with witchcraft, which turned out to be a ridiculous idea because there was quite a lot written already. It was hard to find something that was truly new on women and witchcraft. Um, and I finally, in the course of a seminar, ironically enough, on Latin paleography, discovered medical recipes, which I found, although in 
sort of principle, they're kind of boring because they're just lists of ingredients. I found really fascinating the way they were used. Um, and I just happened to um, read in a secondary work something about women um, and, and their use of medical recipes and thought this was something I would like to pursue. Um, and then it was just a case of being quite lucky that I had just decided randomly to pick this topic because it turned out there was just oodles of archival material in Germany that really had not been examined at all. Um, I wrote to a German professor, Robert Jette, um asking him if he, because he worked on um, one of the women, Elizabeth of Roglitz, who appears in my book, um, he had written an article about her and mentioned that she had a recipe collection, although she hadn't, he hadn't examined it. Um, I wrote to him and he wrote back that it would be a great thing to take a look at. So I ended up starting with Elizabeth of Roglitz, who almost got cut out of the book, although I preserved her in the end. Um, and from there, just discovered there was this whole world of women completely fascinated with medical recipes, both writing their own, trading them. Um, and so I traveled to several archives in Germany, and everywhere I went, I felt like there was just too much information. So it was a very um, – as many – book topics are. It was a very, and especially with archival work, it was coincidental, very lucky, um, and, I, and I felt very pleased that I was able to discover this aspect um, that really hadn't been studied in, in great detail before. That's great. So the book, as you've uh, sort of mentioned a little bit, it looks at medical practices of noble women in particular mm -hmm. from roughly 1520 to about 1600, concentrating in particular on the last four decades of the 16th mm -hmm. century. And you mentioned early in the book that this is actually the first in-depth attempt, and I think a very successful attempt, to situate elite women's healing in a wider context of the history of early modern science and medicine, early mm -hmm. modern medical culture. So this actually began its life as a dissertation, is that right? Yes. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that transformation? What was the transition from dissertation to book manuscript and then published um, book that we're talking about today, like for you, were there any major transformations either in the written work itself and or in the way that you were thinking about the project and the ideas? There were a couple of, of big shifts, I think, between the dissertation and the book. It was a very long road from dissertation to book, in part because I was lucky enough to have a fellowship at Trinity College, Cambridge in England, where I had, um, it ended up being just three years because I got a, a job at Tufts, but I had a, a four-year period where I could just do my own research and didn't really have any teaching duties. Um, so I started to use that period to read as widely as I could in um, published printed sources from the 16th century because the book had really focused heavily on manuscripts and I wanted to see how it could fit into the, the wider situation. And that's something that I feel like in the dissertation I didn't quite get a chance to address as fully as I had wanted to. It's really focused more narrowly on the case studies and the manuscripts um, themselves. So I spent a lot of time in the British Library, which has an excellent, and the Welcome Library um, in London, which both have excellent collections of printed books. I was able to do some additional manuscript research in Germany and Austria as well. Um, and I was also able to have the time to just think the book through a bit. And the really the biggest transformation I would say that happened was the focus that ended up coming up on pharmacy, which was something that was 
sort of in the dissertation, but not as explicitly as it is in the book, that these women became known for the medicine, but in particular, not just medicine more broadly speaking, but pharmacy in particular, making medicines. That was something that was very closely attached to women, and that's something that um, ended up being a big focus of the book, it was just less so in the dissertation. So it was really a sort of broadening of scope to include more information from the wider scene of medicine in early modern Europe and also science in early modern Europe, but also just trying to conceptualize it more particularly what these women were exactly doing. Thank you. And that actually sets us up really nicely as we get into the body of the book itself. Mm -hmm. So the introduction, Pharmacy for Princesses, which is probably one of the best um, subtitles for an introduction I've come across <laughs> in my years doing this. It opens in 1572 rather, with a throng of peasants streaming toward Mansfield Castle in search for a cure from Dorothea of Mansfield, who we'll meet later on in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, you set up the larger situation within which your contribution to the literature on early modern science and medicine, and on women in particular in this mm-hmm. context, um, how this larger context informs the book. You mentioned early here, and I'll just kind of set this up for listeners, that the situation for women healers was what you call an uneasy compromise between, mm-hmm. on the one hand, their usefulness as practitioners, and we'll talk about the various ways in which that manifests in, in a few moments, and also their perceived threat to professional medicine. So the book is going to look at, um, among other things, a couple of questions, or at least a couple of questions that relate to this opening anecdote. How did women healers, including Dorothea, come to be seen as laudable, as virtuous? Um, how did people seek out their help? What what was a countess doing, as you ask early in the book, making medicines in the first place? Mm-hmm. So the book is going to not only answer these questions, but in answering these questions, really transform, I think, quite dramatically how we understand early modern science and medicine and how we understand the place of women healers um, in that larger context. Mm-hmm. So the book argues, and, and here's where um, we come to one of the first things that I'd love to, to ask you to elaborate a little bit on. The book argues, and this is one of the, um, I think, most potent and most uh, uh, most potent arguments with potentially the most wide-ranging um, implications for how we think about um, this material, noble women were celebrated as healers not despite their gender, but because of their gender. And this actually really upends um, a lot of the kind of prevailing extant historiography of women's healing in pre-modern Europe, which tends to view and has tended to view women's healing in early modern and pre-modern Europe as marginal. So can you talk a little bit about um, about that, sort of what, um, to set up the kind of, very briefly, if you can, yeah, sure. Uh, the, the kind of state of the field that you're engaging with, especially for listeners who may not have had the experience of reading literature on this topic before coming to your book. Of course. Yeah. First, I just want to explain um, when I say that they were sort of lauded because of their gender. I mean that medicine became incorporated into the vast array of things that was seen as proper for a noble woman to do, along with things like being able to sew, being able to sing and dance, and all these proper things. Medicine was was one of these, um, and. It does. I, I think it does upend a good deal of historiography. Although, if you take a look at more recent historiography, I think some of these ideas were already starting to be incorporated. But there's really coming out of um, second wave 
feminism in the 70s, there was really this idea that um, women healers were a victim of great misogynism, which was in fact true, um, but that they were really beaten down, that there was um, no room for women to be healers. And in worst case, in best case, they were, you know, looked down upon in worst case, they were burnt as witches. And there were um, a couple of early works coming out of the 70s and early 80s, making a link between witchcraft and um, midwives. And midwives were accused as witches at higher rates than other women. Um, so that's that narrative had begun to be tempered by the late 90s, early 2000s. But I think what hasn't really been recognized is that it wasn't just that they were tolerated to a greater extent than, than um, had been recognized in the early historiography. But in fact, this was seen as a good thing. This was something for which women were actually praised and often praised in, in printed works, um, not just in, in letters. So, yeah, I think that's that's the main trend, I guess, in the historiography over the last 30 years or so. Now, you've talked a little bit um, earlier in at the beginning of the conversation about your experience um, wading through this kind of wealth, what sounded like a wealth of archival resources mm-hmm. on this topic. Now, this is actually something that um, is really interesting about the process. You mentioned, um, and, and this is a point at which I'd like to ask you a little bit about sources, because it's so interesting in this early part of the book. You mentioned in this early part of the book that noble women actually didn't publish their medical books in Germany mm-hmm. before 1600. And in fact, the conclusion of the book um, shines a light on the first woman who did, the first noble woman who did publish um, her work uh, at, at the, as a kind of coda to this story. So the best sources for understanding this work are archival. And you've talked a little bit about um, how many sources there are out there. Was there any um, particular archival experience that you had in researching this that really stuck out as being transformative for you? Or any um, moment in which, in doing the research for this book, you were particularly struck by um, some of the sources or or some of your experiences trying to access these sources that made up the raw material of the book? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my... um I mean, I had wonderful experiences at a number of archives, but really the defining one was um, the archive in Dresden, which has all of the papers of Anna of Saxony, including somewhere around 16,000 letters um, that are both to and from her. And I'd written to them, as I did for every archive, I'd written them a letter asking whether you know, there are any of these sources, and they wrote back with sort of a half laugh saying, you know, there's a ton of material. <laughs> we, we can't even list it all. Um, so there were both letters to and from her, as well as a lot of the holdings of her library. There's an inventory of her library, so I could see what books she herself used. Um, there was a, a lot of materials that is still extant in Dresden that she had owned. Um, but really, the most sort of poignant one for me was reading the letter exchanges between Anna of Saxony and another woman who you started the interview with, Dorothea of Mansfeld, um, who are two of the biggest figures in the book. And just the first of all, there are hundreds of letters between them. And second of all, they are just chock full of medical information and, and really getting into the nitty gritty issues about medicine. And that was really that when it struck I mean, well, this is really amazing and, and huge, this um, correspondence between these two very elite noble women that they're spending all their time writing to each other about medicine, uh, pharmacy in, in particular. They, they, they both seem like fascinating figures in their own right, and I'm, I'll, I'll definitely ask you to talk yeah. about that. <laughs> so 
Uh, before we get to the individual case studies, though, and the couple of chapters that set up the um, more kind of conceptual thematic context within which we're going to situate these case studies, you mentioned at the beginning uh, a very important point that also may not be, the implications of which may not be familiar to some listeners, which is the fact that Panacea's Daughters, um, this case, this book, is set directly in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you talk briefly about why is that important and why do we need to understand that to understand what comes uh, later on in the course of the the book and the transformations that we see there? Well, it's an In some ways, it's extremely important, and actually, in some ways, it's not important at all. Um, There are many ways. All of of the women who appear in my case studies are Protestants. Um, It just so happens we have a lot more materials on the women who were Protestants. Um, This is is an era that I'm really focusing on that is um, after the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, when... It was then when each ruler was allowed to choose the religion in his land. Um, so there's a lot, most of Germany was divided between Lutherans and Catholics, with some Calvinists beginning to um, have a upsurge in some areas. Um, so we're talking in most instances about a Protestant context, although there is some question, um, some women, like in particular Dorothea of Mansfeld, was born Catholic, converted late in life, maybe, maybe maybe not have. She was not very confessionalized. Anna of Saxony was um, a devout Lutheran, as was Elizabeth of Roklitz, my, my last case study. Um, but I don't want to make an argument that women's medicine is something that you can map onto confessional identities, because we. I have letters to Anna of Saxony from several Catholic women um, who are clearly very interested in medicine as well. Um, a good example is Anna Bavaria, uh, who was a devout Catholic and wrote for help with setting up a, distill- a distilling house at her estate. Um, Maria, the empress of um, the Holy Roman Empire, empress, was also very interested in medicine and sought Anna's advice. So religion was important um, because it was important to the women involved, but it can, I don't want to make the argument that Protestant women were more likely to practice medicine because I don't think that's correct. Great. Thank you so much, Alicia. And, I'll, and I'll, um, as I move us into the, the rest of the body of the book, I will apologize in advance to you and to listeners for my jersification of yes. all of the names here. So Dorotea will become Dorothea, Anna will become Anna, and all kinds of stuff like that. So listen with with Jersey filters here. So part one of the book, Context, contextualizes noble women's healing within three major phenomenon factors that um, the first two chapters of the book treat. So chapter one looks specifically at information exchange, and this is in the context both of local and broader epistolary networks, and also empirical knowledge. And you mentioned many um, coexisting empiricisms in that context, Mm -hmm. which I'd love to talk with you about. And then chapter two looks specifically at medicinal recipes as a genre, um, as a a form, and the larger implications within these networks of scholarly exchange and changing ideas of empiricism and artisanal um, practices uh, within which we should understand recipes. So it's really a fascinating part of the book. The first chapter looks at courtly networks and the rise of uh, medical empiricism. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned here 
that is interest in empirical knowledge and cultural exchange within and between or among courts expanded or rose, so did recognition of noble women's remedies. So, so in fact, they're being taken more and more seriously for their remedies because of this larger context that their work is situated in. You argue here that local and epistolary com communities caused people increasingly to value empirical and experiential knowledge as a way of judging medical efficacy. So I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about these two um, two main aspects of what's going on in this mm -hmm. chapter of the book that really shape everything that's to come, both the, important of the importance of epistolary communities mm -hmm. and also this rise of an attention to experimentation, early experimentation, um, sort of early mm -hmm. forms of empiricism. So maybe if we can start with the, uh, the, these epistolary communities and their importance to the transformation of what's happening here, and then um, perhaps move to the um, importance of this early form of experimentalism. Sure. Um, I mean, epistolary communities have obviously existed long before this, but we, we do definitely see, and other scholars have noted this too, a big upsurge in communication in the 16th century where um, not just um, scholars of the time, but people in general are writing more letters back and forth. In the court context that I'm looking at, literacy, literacy rates go up drastically, and in particular, for women. So whereas before, um, some women who were trained by humanists might have been literate. Now it was fairly expected that a noble woman would be literate. So the uh, epistolary communities had already existed. Women in the course of the 16th century became more and more involved in them. And they also became more and more central to uh, European science in general, to creating a sort of republic of letters as it later became known more in the 17th century. But I would argue you could also make that, um, use that term for the 16th century as well. Um, and there have been several scholars, most recently Nancy Sarisi, who have uh, noted the importance of letters in scholarly communities in this time frame. Um, and I would argue you can expand it beyond scholarly communities to uh, Europe in general. The courts are also very important that because a number of princes um, were themselves involved in empirical study, so they corresponded with um, both people at the universities, other scholars, um, so they helped create this broader epistolary community. Um, and in terms, and the, the, the story of the rise of empiricism really mirrors that um, very closely in that there had been more attention paid to the empirical study of nature from at least the late 15th century. Um, it's certainly not new in the 16th century, but sort of subsumed into this greater exchange across Europe, um, it became something that was discussed more often, um, used more specifically in printed works. So you see the word experience as an important keyword in printed works um, more and more from the sort of early to mid 16th century. Um, and it's something that, you know, grew in small increments throughout the century. Um, and then I don't know if you wanted me to say something about women's role within all of this, or is that sure, the next whatever, question? Sure, okay. whatever you'd like to talk, whatever you'd like to mention. Because where I think the, um, the, the significance of this to the phenomenon I'm talking about is that it is something that existed on local levels um, already. For, since the Middle Ages, we have little bits of evidence that say that women were locally quite 
recognized for healing. Um, and by locally, I mean very locally. So their own small communities, um, whoever the people who are sort of responsible, they are responsible for as, as a ruling coupled. Um, but once the epistolary communities began to be broader and women began to participate in them more often, their medicine became more visible. So they could write letters to other women, other uh, male aristocrats as well, to discuss the practices that were going on locally. So it's very much a local phenomenon, as I think a lot of knowledge was in early modern Europe, local phenomenon that became more broadly um, diffused because of this growing epistolary um, communities. And you mentioned um, late in this chapter also that the, this increasing focus on empiricism and on, as um, you really indicate, I think very helpfully later in this chapter, a plurality of empiricism, mm-hmm. and also the presence of these growing networks created new opportunities for noble women to collaborate with and learn from and exchange with physicians. And this also becomes, as um, mm-hmm. as I see it as the, from the perspective of one reader, an important part of the story. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I should, I should um, really emphasize that I am not trying to put them into separate boxes. Um, noble women used physicians as their own personal medical advisors. They became very friendly with physicians in many cases. So this is something that is not in opposition between noble women and learned physicians. Um, they are in um, similar social spheres. Noble women obviously higher. Um, so yeah, there, there's a, a good deal of collaboration. And, and that's significant because the kind of and this actually relates to the whole question of empiricism, the kind of knowledge that was seen as particularly women's knowledge was empirical empiricism. And that in the Middle Ages was a negative. They were empirics. Um, women's arts, I put in scare quotes, um, were something that were a lowly form of knowledge, something that could not be rationally foreseen, like the medical theory. However, as... Um, empiricism began to rise in status in the 16th century, from the late 15th century, that meant that women were sort of primed already to be recognized more broadly um, for the the practices they were doing already. Um, So I'm sort of arguing that that this type of knowledge that physicians were interested in mapped more closely onto the type of knowledge that women were already seen as possessing. Now, the next chapter actually elaborates the story by looking very closely at medicinal recipes as the foundation of noble women's medical practice. Mm-hmm. That's something that's um, a phenomenon that's very closely related to this growing attention to empiricism and different forms of empiricism that you mentioned earlier on in the conversation in the book. Mm-hmm. So you um, lay out here the broader context within which we can understand women's medicinal recipes Um, telling us, I think, very helpfully about the ways that from the 15th century on, collecting medicinal recipes becomes extremely popular and increasingly Mm -hmm. popular within the court and also beyond the court. And this is the main form of writing, or of medical writing, Mm -hmm. rather, that noble women are participating in. Mm -hmm. You're linking recipes with experiential knowledge in the way that um, we talked about just uh, prior to um, this part of the conversation in Chapter 1 by looking very carefully and closely at the use and also the implications of the German term Kunst in mm-hmm. understanding recipes. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because that was a, an extraordinarily fascinating part of this book. Yeah, sure. The, um, the German term Kunst translates loosely as art, um, and it can mean actually 
a good many things. Um, and it, it could, in some senses, be an analogous term for recipe. So um, medicinal recipes are often collected into books in which titles of each recipe are listed. And you'll often see a title of a recipe listed as a, a kunst for a sore throat or something like that. So that the word kunst is sort of repeats the word recipe, but it comes from the word comes from the German verb können, which means to be able to do. It has an active sense in it as well. So it's not just about the sort of physical object of the recipe that you're supposed to follow, but also there's a sense of an ability behind it. So the know-how that's behind it. Um, and in fact, in many ways, the word kunst just can mean knowledge. It can be more of a broader term um, for knowledge, a more, the- more theoretical sort rather than a practical sort as well. Um, and in some cases, it was also used as a stand-in just for a ready-made medicine. So um, in one case, one uh, woman sent Elizabeth of Roglitz a little jar of cinnamon water that she referred to as a kunst. So the remedy itself was the kunst. So it's a completely complicated word that shows up all the time. Um, in the sources I've looked at, most often it has quite an active meaning. So there's this, like, this active idea behind um, the recipe. It's not just a dead document on a page. It's something that has behind it this whole range of experience. Now, also in this chapter, and, and before we move on to the key studies, I just want to signal this for listeners and also to ask you a little bit about this. You're integrating this story not just within broader discourses and understandings about empiricism, experiential knowledge, women's healing, and recipes as a form of literature within the early modern European context, but you're also touching on the ways that this particular form of scientific literature, medical literature um, speaks to larger issues in terms of the way we understand orality mm-hmm. and memory. So I wonder yes. if you could say a little bit about that, because that also, I think, really expands this case study out into potentially you know, broad uh, ramifications for the way we understand these much larger uh, phenomena. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the sort of interplay between orality and, and memory and writing is really important, um, in particular because many of the, the more simple recipes were things that women had in their head. And it was if it was in their head, it was not something that could be shared very easily. Um, and we see this in particular in an exchange between um, Dorothea of Mansfeld, or I'll, I'll call her Dorothea for you, <laughs> and, um, and Anna of Saxony, in which Dorothea was quite a bit older. She was quite elderly um, in a lot of in the time that they were corresponding with each other. And um, Anna was quite uh, desperate to get a number of Dorothea's recipes before she forgot them. Um, so, and Dorothea herself noted that she had started to have to write recipes down because her memory was starting to fail her. So she clearly had things in her head that she just knew, um, but it was very important that she write them down so that they wouldn't be forgotten. So she was, um, there's a lot of talk about the shift from morality to writing. And Dorothea was, Dorothea was someone who was really, in both traditions, because um, as I'm sure many home cooks are today, it's the same thing where you have a recipe in your head um, and then someone asks you for it and then you say, well, I don't really know <laughs> to figure out how to write that down. Um, so it's a similar situation in which um, Anna was asking Dorothea to write things down and she noted that 
this took a lot of time to do this, to try to put onto paper the, the recipes that were in her head. Um, so, yeah, it, it speaks to the actual labor of making this a written tradition rather than simply uh, oral or, or um, tradition of memory. So let's talk about the recipes that were in her head. Mm-hmm. Actually, she's the first of three case studies, three in-depth case studies with other um, figures popping up here and there that make up part two of the book. So two of these case studies focus on healers, and one of them focuses on a woman who was was a healer but also um, was a patient. So we're mostly interested in her um, from that perspective. So Chapter 3 uses um, Dorothea, or Dorothea, Mm -hmm. new books in science, technology, and society, where we translate the history of science and medicine into Jersey. Um, so, um, okay, so chapter three focuses on Dorothea of Mansfield as an example to illustrate the connections between medical practice, charity, and court patronage. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about her? Who was she, um, first of all, and just, you know, briefly so that we can understand the context in which to place her med- medical work? Okay, Dorothea, as may come through in the book itself, was my favorite of the three women who I worked on in depth. She was just, um, you could see even just through the letters that she was pretty hilarious. She was very witty. Um, But she was a a noble woman in the... um, you know, old noble family married into the old noble, noble family of Mansfeld, which is quite close to Wittenberg, where Luther, um, you know, Luther was actually born in one of the Mansfeld towns of Iceland. So Luther is very closely connected to um, Mansfeld. And um, she, we don't know exactly how she learned her medicine. There's no documents from her youth, although we know that her father was a humanist and that her brother, who was just a year and a half older, was very interested in chemistry, so alchemy slash chemistry. Um, so it seems quite likely that Dorothea was educated alongside her brother as a humanist because her handwriting is absolutely beautiful, which is another reason to love her because the other women who I worked on, that was definitely not the case. So she had this absolutely gorgeous um, humanist hand um, and also went through all of the upheavals of the Reformation because she married into the the Counts of Mansfeld. Her husband, Ernst II of Mansfeld, um, remained a staunch Catholic after the Reformation, after Luther began to gain popularity, whereas some of his uh, brothers went right to Luther. So there was a split within the family, which was quite common in the Reformation. So she grew up in a lot of turmoil. She had many sons who managed to later bankrupt the property, um, which ended up having to basically go under the oversight of the elector of Saxony. Um, So she had a very, although she was a very elite woman, she had a difficult life. Her husband died in 1532, so she was sort of left on her own um, for a while. But she clearly had this um, cachet of being a very talented healer from very early on. Um, So as I mentioned in the chapter, the first glimpses of her healing we have are twofold. First, a series of letters she wrote to Luther about um, trying a disease that he had. She'd heard that he was ill and gave him some medical advice. And the way she writes it is very clear that she does not agree with the doctors Luther um, has has been treated by and has her own ideas about what what he should be doing instead. Um, And similarly, she writes to a doctor treating um, the elector Moritz of Saxony, who has also fallen ill, 
um, giving him recommendation for treatment as well. And again, in a very authoritative way that suggests that she really feels, first of all, that she knows the proper course of healing, but secondly, that she thinks the listener the, or the reader will, will listen to her advice or, or take it in a positive manner. And we know, at least from Luther, that he wrote back to her after the first letter. We don't know what he wrote because his letter's lost, but we have a response from her to a letter that she wrote to him. So we know, that, at least in Luther's case, that it was certainly taken seriously. So, and you describe in the chapter how she's particularly famous for her distillation, for her mm-hmm. waters, for aqua vitae. Now, you, she emphasizes in her descriptions of her own work, um, and you emphasize in the chapter, the charitable nature of her distilling and other medical practices. And this is actually a really important part of the argument of the chapter. So can you talk a little bit about this? Because this is also, along with her widowhood and her money troubles, which are both going to um, be related to what's happening right. her um, charity, this is really going to distinguish her from what comes next as, as well in the later chapters. Yes, exactly. Um, so the, her healing was... Um, sort of admired by people of all classes, but she tended to characterize it particularly as something she did for the poor. And the poor, we don't know how to understand it, but she um, writes in many places, including the anecdote I opened the book with, um, just the numbers of poor who were in her castle garden who she treated. Um, And she emphasized that she liked to treat them with her own hands, that she handed out medicines to them directly, um, she had some remedies that she made en masse for large numbers of poor people. And she really, at least in her letters to uh, Anna of Saxony, she portrayed her charitable endeavors with the poor as really the center of her medicine. She gave plenty of advice to others. Her recipes appear in numerous recipe books among aristocrat in the aristocratic um, court sphere. But she characterized her healing as primarily and most importantly charitable, i.e. aimed at the poor. And this really connects her to the history of women's healing. Um, The sort of lady of the manor was seen as responsible for her own, the people at her manor house, but also for the wider um, poor community. So this is really connects her to the medieval tradition, but also becomes a common narrative about women's medicine in early modern printed works, you often see um, noble women women connected to pharmacy and specifically pharmacy for the poor. So this is really something that was seen as, that was really central to why women became recognized because of their healing, because it was seen as as something that would fit into overall general um, womanly ideas of charity. So women were more closely connected to charity and the poor in general, than were men. It was seen as part of the overall nature of women. Um, And Dorothea really fits her medicine into that um, background. Now, Dorothea Dorothea, um, her her charitable work and her emphasis on this charitable work draws the attention of a figure who you've already mentioned, we've talked about a little bit, Anna of Saxony, Mm -hmm. who becomes her patron and who's the focus of the next chapter. So, Mm -hmm. um, Anna... Anna Anna, like Dorothea Dorothea, mm-hmm. um, Anna of Saxony is actually a very, very different kind of example. She's a very, very different kind of noble woman healer. So let's move to her and talk about her for a little bit. Now, she comes up earlier in the book, in the first chapter, um, in, in which case 
the Empress Maria actually seeks her out to help treat her sister's golden vein. Mm-hmm. And I will leave open for listeners who will have to go to the book to see <laughs> what a golden vein problem is. But she comes back as the main focus of chapter four. So mm-hmm. who is Anna um, and how do we understand her within this landscape or ecology of noble woman healers? Yes, Anna is a very different figure from Dorothea. Dorothea, um, I may not have emphasized, was a widow for most of her life. For most of the time that the book looks at her, she is a widow, which is partially why she looks at charity um, so closely. Anna, on the other hand, was um, married, also even higher status. She was the daughter of um, King Christian III of Denmark, so she was a Danish princess. Um, she married the then Duke August of Saxony um, when she when they were both only 16 years old and moved with him to um, the Saxon regions. Um, August then became elector of Saxony, which meant he had uh, the power to elect the emperor, so one of the highest uh, positions in the realm. So she was extremely high status, extremely, her husband is very powerful and through him, so she was, so was um, she and they were a very symbiotic pair. They clearly, um, you know, traveled a lot together. There are very few letters between the two of them because they traveled so much they didn't need to write each other. Um, so she accompanied him on his state visits abroad. And um, he clearly also supported her in many great ways. She, he gave over to her the running of Saxony's goods and services industries, um, which she managed to streamline. So, so she was participated in helping Saxony's economic boom in the 1560s and 70s um, and was had the, unlike Garcia, who kind of had to make her way through the problems of being a widow and having um, sons who are bankrupting her, uh, the county, basically. Anna Saxony had a powerful husband, was in a position of power her whole life, and she died a year before her husband. Um, so she was always married throughout um, her entire career as um, an electress, but also then as an electress who was deeply involved in pharmacy. And she doesn't emphasize charity at all. It's the, yeah, exactly. So that's a quite striking dis- difference. She clearly was involved in charitable healing. We know that from her inventories. She has a separate the inventory of her estate the uh, lists a separate cabinet that was specifically medicines for the poor people. Um, and she mentions once or twice in her letters um, something about the poor. But she certainly does not make it the center of her healing in the way that Dorothea does. And I think that um, it shows this uneasy compromise about women. So Dorothea needed to point to the charity because she was in a less stable social position, whereas Anna, being much um, more stable in her sort of social position, uh, focused more on the actual medicine itself and focused more on the fact that she was helping people who were her peers rather than the poor. So she places her medicine not in the context of charity, but instead in the context of two major phenomena that you talk about in this chapter that I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about in turn, because they're both uh, really important and really fascinating in this chapter. So one of the contexts is a courtly fascination, I think um, these are your terms, with hands-on scientific inquiry. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about this in the context of um, early, experiments, or early experimentation and criticisms. But you mentioned a term here um, that comes up elsewhere in the book as well, is not just as she an empiric, but she's a noble empiric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that comes up in this um, description in this chapter of her fascination 
with or her context within a more widespread fascination with hands-on manipulation of nature was not only was she um, learning and seeking out um, education through hands-on instruction, Mm -hmm. not only is she um, interested in, you know, teaching some of her servants how to to do this so that she can trust them, Mm -hmm. making improvements in her flasks and her equipment, so she's really hands-on, but she's also somebody... Um, for whom trust is very important and who mm-hmm. is in turn trusted. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in the context of this empiricism and, and hands-on knowledge here, this issue of trust. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's something that's been addressed in uh, other big works on history of science, in particular by um, Steve Shapin and Shapin and Simon Schaffer. Um, but the issue of whether you can trust someone's um, knowledge of medicine or their you know, their descriptions of something being effective or having worked was paramount. Um, so there's a concern overall with how you validate medicines. How do you validate whether a cure really works, which is a complicated question overall because of the way the body worked at the time. It wasn't quite, um, there wasn't a simple way to heal everybody with a certain, with one medicine or the other. Um, so you had to figure this question of trust into it. Do you trust, if someone says this works, how do you trust them? And Anna Saxony, given her high status, um, had already a large measure of trust built into you know, her authority. So if she said something worked, it already meant that um, people were known to trust her. Although you do see, and I think that was true, not only of women practitioners, but of other practitioners as well, that the you know, courtly, higher status aristocrats um, already sort of had some, you know, got a little bit of a uh, free ride in terms of being more trustworthy than others unless they prove themselves unworthy, as as occasionally they did. There are cases where um, they lose status because of um, engaging activities that were seen as untrustworthy. Um, So, yeah, I think it's central to the validation of um, various kinds of knowledge, in this case, medicine, um, whether the person giving the advice can be trusted. And it's often, often in addition of sort of ways in which they can reinforce this trust is to discuss numbers of times in which the cure has worked or um, whether it had been tested on themselves using one's own body often um, reinforced that a particular cure worked. Um, So there are various ways in which an already trustworthy person could then um, increase that by giving certain markers about uh, specific cures. The other factor that you emphasized in this chapter that was really important to um, the way she situated her work and the way we um, ought to understand it is her interest in a kind of what you call a Lutheran focus on household gender roles. And I learned mm-hmm. a new word in this chapter, gynecocracy. Yes. We're going to actually try to work into conversation. Excellent. <laughs> so, so can you talk about that? Because that actually seems equally important to what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I should. That, that it's important because it shows the extent to which... Um, it feeds into my overall argument about women being recognized um, as healers because of their gender, um, how it fit into um, general ideas about uh, noble women and aristocratic women. Um, gynecocracy basically just means rule by women. Um, and it was something that Anna was actually accused of um, by a member of her court. And in a, a scandal which has a great name known as the crypto-Calvinist scandal, um, in which there was some sort of 
secretive Calvinists at court who were trying to convince Algus of Saxony, who they saw as more pliable, um, to become a Calvinist. Um, and there was the idea that if they won over Anna, then August would follow because he followed Anna, basically that, that Anna wore the pants in the family, which in 16th century Germany was a terrible thing to accuse anyone of, um, particularly a ruling elector, that he listened to his wife and not the other way around. So it became a huge scandal at the court um, in which a few of the perpetrators were imprisoned and one was executed. Um, actually, one of the doctors who was very close to Anna and August Kasper Poitzer was um, thrown, and, and very well known throughout Germany, was thrown into jail until after August's death. Um, but uh, the point I'm making in the chapter is that um, it had nothing to do with her medicine at all. It was particularly about her religion. The accusations were about religion. Her medicine did not play into this idea of gynecocracy at all. And in fact, Anna continually emphasized her own subordination to usual gender roles. Um, so she did emphasize that um, she actually wrote in a couple of places that women had a place in God's kingdom. But she recognized also that um, she had certain rules to abide by. And she scolded her own daughter when her own daughter overstepped what she saw as the proper um, loyalty due to her husband, um, because it was her daughter's husband who was seen as the sort of instigator of this whole broader crypto-Calvinist affair. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very important to recognize that she was not trying to um, really expand women's boundaries. She was just trying to work within what she saw as the existing hierarchies in which her medicine fit without a problem. And the chapter ends, and, and I won't ask you to talk about this so that we can get to Elizabeth. Uh, mm -hmm. It's fascinating, but I'll just mention it for listeners. The chapter does end by providing a, a snapshot of a contrasting case, Philippine Velser, Merchant's daughter, who actually did marry Archduke Ferdinand of Tyrol, but you show here she never actually got the kind of recognition as a healer beyond her local setting because of her humble birth, in contrast to some of these other noble women, and certainly in contrast to Anna. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she was much more comparable to Dorothea of Mansfeld, except she didn't even get the wider recognition that Dorothea did, and it's because she was um, not born a noble woman. So, Chapter 5 turns to actually the, uh, the character who was my favorite. <laughs> She's so colorful. And this is Elizabeth of Rocklitz. Um, this chapter considers the point of view of the patient and the experience of illness in Reformation Germany. So she, um, Elizabeth of Rocklitz, she is a widow by the time we meet her here. She's got a very close relationship with her brother, Landgrave Philip the Magnanimous of Hesse, um, and she's sort of she's using her position in her widowhood um, as somebody who's set up in this territory to build support for the Reformation. Now, at some point after her husband dies and she relocates to Rocklitz, she becomes a permanent invalid. And you mention this really fascinating um, unbound collection of recipes, which are probably mm -hmm. um, we can read or and you you have read here as being used to treat her in part um, as a way, or and, and it seems like you got there by reconciling the kinds of illnesses that were uh, mentioned in the mm -hmm. recipes with the kinds of illnesses or symptoms that she complained of um, in her own writings, which is a, a super interesting um, moment here, just if, you know, among many other reasons for the perspective of how to use sources. And so it's, I think, really a model of how to um, <laughs> reconcile different forms of archival work and mm -hmm. understanding um, how to read documents. 
Now, she she's fascinating for all kinds of reasons here. Um, mm-hmm. And again, she's one of my favorite characters. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> um, one of the things that you emphasize in describing her is um, the way she looked to many different sources of medical care in her efforts to treat her illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about her, um, what kind her illnesses, what kinds of things are she, is she suffering from, and how is she navigating this very plural um, context of healing options um, from where she's standing as a as a patient? Yes, um, yeah. So she um, has a variety of medical complaints, uh, which appear to start while she is um, at the. At the, at the town of Brooklitz, where which has a castle where she was actually sort of the ruler for several years. That was her widow's estate. Um, she was driven out of there at some point and forced to a small manor house in the town of Schmalkalden, which was under the rule of her brother, basically. Um, and it was particularly at Schmalkalden, which another great name, um, where she began to have the worst of her illnesses, uh, which um, began as sort of complaints, um, in particular sores. She also had fevers quite often, um, mostly external complaints. However, she also had gout, which, you know, as most people did at that time, by their sort of their late 40s. Um, And in order to navigate this sort of network of symptoms, as she perceived them, she really was very careful to describe her illnesses as um, particular instances of um, particular symptoms that arose. Um, she tended to look to, as I saw from her recipe collection, um, external things, so salves and baths and ointments and things you could apply externally because most of her symptoms were external, although she also had her sort of stock of purgatives, which were very important to cure at the time as well. Um, so you can really see from the recipes in her collection, which originally I had gone to look at her collection as um, uh, evidence of her own healing. And and we know she did make some of her own medicines. Um, But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that they were probably used more to treat her because of the heavy weight given to um, external medications. And because I know that that's the sort of medication she used rather than internal complaints. Um, And because she uh, wrote to apothecaries a lot, so there's a lot of um, correspondence, a lot of bills from apothecaries in her papers as well. So we know that um, apothecaries being the um, druggists, uh, the pharmacists of the early modern era, we know that she drew upon their help a good bit. Now, among the many kinds of religious, um, or (laughs) I just gave it away, among the many kinds of healing that she sought out was uh, Mm -hmm. religious healing in Mm -hmm. this book or this part of the book really talks about the almighty physician and the mm-hmm. importance of this to um, the way she navigated the ecology of healing options um, in her case. So would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, exactly. Um, so she, when she you know, felt uh, relief from drugs, she tended to attribute it, it not to the drugs themselves, but to the almighty physician. And in some cases, in fact, she claimed that she didn't want any, uh, any sort of earthly medicines because the almighty physician would keep her safe. So the almighty physician, obviously being God, or in some cases, Jesus, um, she really looked to higher powers to cure her ultimately. However, that should not be, uh, one should not interpret that as her not really wanting to use earthly medicines because she used a ton of them as evidenced by the sort of 80 recipes in her collection. Um, But it was a way for her to understand her healing as something that was really, um, 
carried out by God. And if it didn't work, it was because, you know, God had chosen not to heal her. So it was really the ultimate decision um, was God's. And that also gave her a good deal of freedom to choose whatever um, cures she felt would be the best for her complaints. Um, so, as I mentioned, a learned physicians were the, usually the most closest um, counselors of aristocrats. But Elizabeth didn't always like using physicians, although she corresponded with many of them and had friendly relationships with many of them. The uh, most common cure or the most common sort of uh, remedy prescribed by physicians was a change in diet. Uh, physicians were really responsible for sort of the external or the internal workings of the body, and, and that was seen as best regulated by uh, a diet for whatever, you know, set of complaints that was happening. And Elizabeth generally did not like to follow restrictive diets, as I'm sure many people today can relate to. Um, so in order to avoid them, she often looked to other cures that were more just um, cures that would cure her symptoms rather than the whole body um, in, in the, that uh, idea of medicine at the time. And I think one of the really interesting things that comes out of this chapter, and, and I won't ask you to um, talk too much about it so that we can, because I don't want to keep you for two, well, I do want to keep you for two hours, <laughs> but I promise not to go okay. for two hours, is that um, you mentioned French disease. Here, yes. Uh, which, just like the, the golden vein before, I'm going to just leave the French disease as the French disease for listeners, and they can look to the book and explain, mm-hmm. or for an explanation of what that may be translated into mm-hmm. uh, your position more broadly on the translation of um, pre-modern or, or different how to translate and think about translating symptoms and forms of illness and experience among different contexts, which is its own set of issues, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I won't um, I won't spoil the secret of the French disease, but it is, it is important to note that Elizabeth disagreed vehemently with physicians on what kind of illness she had, particularly towards the end of her life, um, and that impacted the ideas of cure uh, significantly. That's right. And so um, I, I urge listeners to look particularly at Chapter 5 for the French disease and also the smear. Or the schmear, and bigger lovers will never think about <laughs> exactly again. And this totally different. It's <laughs> <laughs> very different. So the book concludes uh, with a brief look at the first woman to publish her collection of medical recipes, the Duchess Eleonora of Württemberg. Um, and you you mention here, um, and I'll just sort of mention this to close up before I uh, before we move to the conclusion. This is actually a really important case. Um, because this is kind of the the bookmark, or not the bookmark, but the um, really the marker of a transformation. And most of these women that you mentioned, or as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, at the be- at the beginning of the book, never published their recipes. And this is the first woman to publish her collection yes. of medical recipes. So actually, before we move to the close, do you want to talk a little bit um, about her? Why does it become um, possible, or uh, like basically, what are the circumstances that engender for publishing this collection and why is that important for understanding the larger transformations in the book that you're depicting? Well, um, so I should say that she published her collections. It was, they were, and she was a widow like Dorothea of Mansfeld, and she was a widow twice and um, outlived her second husband by, by quite a few years, a couple decades. Um, so by the time she published her book, she seemed that she was probably in need of some patronage. Um, it was probably used, um, much like Dorothea's charity, her 
publication of her medicine was probably used as um, a sort of patronage. She published originally in very limited editions um, in very large folio formats. So these were not books that anyone would run out and buy. They were seems to have been um, intended mostly to a very limited audience that she give could give as sort of a gift. And, and it seems also likely that um, the press she used was owned by her former brother-in-law um, before her, um, who she had known very well. So she, so it was something that was really aimed at a very closed audience. There is an element of um, secrecy to this whole thing that we haven't really talked about, where aristocrats didn't really want their recipes getting in the hands of lower class people. They thought that if they were overused, they might not work anymore, and they also thought that they might be used for nefarious things if um, the commoners got a hold of them. So when uh, Eleonora published her recipes, it was really not intended as a broad publication, but rather a narrow one within that aristocratic sphere. And there was one book published by a physician that was a precedent for hers that was a compilation of mostly nobles um, recipes as well. And of course, her book then later got published in a smaller quarto edition that was much more widely distributed. So her intent to keep it more narrow was not successful, as is always the problem with print. Um, but yeah, it was sort of a, a transition between the world of women not publishing and a, a world in which they, they did publish the recipes more broadly, as was true by the later 17th century. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for spending the time to talk with me about what's a really wonderful and very vibrant and readable and really fascinating book. Now, we thank you. About, no, it's my pleasure. We only really scratched the surface of um, what's going on in the chapters, and of course I urge listeners to read the book themselves, to see all the um, flavor of all of these uh, characters and, and arguments that we've been talking briefly about here. Is there anything in particular, though, that we didn't have a chance to talk about in this hour, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, I'd actually like to circle back to one of the first questions you asked about the epistolary community, because I think one thing I didn't, I don't think I quite emphasized enough was um, the joy of reading these women's letters. Uh, so one thing that I got very lucky with, which is not, this is a phenomenon that was um, common across Europe, but the German archives are wonderful in that they preserve a lot of these letters. So you can get the not only the medical activities of these women, but also their personalities. So that's why you know I can say I really liked Artea and you thought Elizabeth was so funny because you can really get a feel from their personalities and realize that there's you know some of their biography alongside of the medicine, which I I found really just wonderful to work with. Um, and I also wanted to um, if, you, if your listeners have a chance to go online and look at. Um, the book on the Chicago website or on Amazon. Uh, there's the cover you can see is a 17th century engraving of two women standing in front of stills in their long skirts. Um, that was published in a 17th century um, sort of guide to running an estate, um, which included instructions for how women should make the medicines at the estate. Um, so it really, I feel like the image really brings home a lot of what I was talking about that these um, really upper class, upper class aristocratic women actually sometimes stood in front of stills and made medicines. So that's about all. 
So Alicia, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book. Thank you. What's next for you? What's, what's on the horizon? Um, I'm continuing to be interested in um, the history of drugs. And my next book is on um, poison antidotes and panaceas and the general world of wonder drugs in 16th, 16th and 17th century Europe. And I'm particularly interested in um, issues uh, such as testing poison antidotes. I'm working on an article right now on testing poison antidotes on um, animals and on condemned criminals in the 16th century. Um, but also in interested in the overall idea of um, drugs as a central remedy, more central than diet as, as the century we're on, and um, the search for a universal cure or a universal panacea that can cure any disease, um, which became a hope by the end of the 16th century. Well, thank you so much. Well, best of luck with that research. It also sounds fascinating, and I'll hope to talk with you about that book. When it's okay. <laughs> in the meantime, thank you so much for making the time, Alicia. Thanks so much, Carla. It's been a lot of fun. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.